Now, all right, welcome to Free Association, Technocratic Tyranny Blues, whatever I'm calling it today. Uh, this is a new show. Um, my BT engineer has left for the evening. Uh, having not fitted my broadband, not completed the process of fitting my broadband, so he's got to come back tomorrow, which means I've got about half an hour uh, before I've got to go out and get something to eat. So it's time for some news clips, and I'm on the old laptop, so they'll be clicky, and the sound quality is not great, but it is what it is. So this is a, a clip from GB News. This is uh, Hamish de Breton Gordon speaking about um, the Russia-Ukraine war. Are the Russians rising up? Well, I think it's showing what a desperate situation this is. Um, your point about the hostages being returned, the prisoners being returned, that's really good news. That's about the only good news we've seen coming out of Ukraine uh, and Russia recently. But the mobilisation of 300,000 uh, ostensibly young fighting age males in Russia is almost state-sponsored homicide. These young kids again get a day or two's training, given a rifle, and put in the trenches. They're fighting well-trained, uh, highly motivated, highly capable forces in Ukraine. You know, even the basic Ukrainian troops who come to the UK to be trained have a week, have a month's training. Um, before going into the front line. So it's it's absolutely desperate. You know, the Russians claim they've lost 5,000 troops killed in this war. It's officially been designated of about 50,000. The reality is it's probably nearer 100,000. So to try and grab people off the streets, and as your pictures are showing, these are not willing volunteers. And no. for my 30 years fighting in battlefields, you really need to want to do it to be successful if you're well, being you're gonna, dragged you're gonna there, have to. you're having a hope. A Ukrainian politician tweeted something the other day, which I thought was quite interesting. It just said, more Russian troops equals more dead Russians. Is that true? That's absolutely right. I mean, it does sound very callous, and it's dreadful talking about human beings in this way, which is why, you know, we must try and make sure that this doesn't happen, because those young boys being dragged off the streets are they going to be put in the front line? It's a bit like the First World War, you know, in, in, in battles of Ypres and Passchendaele, where tens, if not hundreds of thousands of young men walked into bullets to their deaths. And this is what we're going to see with these Russian kids, because they will stand no chance against the, uh, the uh, weaponry and the fight of the Ukrainians, and of course the advanced weaponry that we're giving them as well. You know, and with yesterday also Putin and Markov and Medyev threatening us with nuclear attack just shows how absolutely desperate uh, they are. And uh, Putin's walls seem to be crumbling. Let's hope there are a few sane people in, in the Kremlin at the moment and, and will remove him from power. And I expect more importantly, or more likely, the Russian people, who, as you say, are now rising up, the sort of protests we've never seen before. Um, hopefully they're the people who are going to bring Putin down and get uh, some sort of peace in Ukraine, rather than this carnage which is going to unfold, I'm sure, over the next couple of months, if nothing else happens. I'm going to return to the protests in Russia a bit later on. I want to get you as a military perspective, really, on this. And some people will say that the return of hostages or captives, as it were, these British chaps that have now come home, and 
Some videos circulating online, I'm sure people have seen them, of supposedly Ukrainian soldiers with suspiciously American accents, for example. Have foreign forces not just been giving the Ukrainian army weapons, but also personnel as well? Because if that is the case, and it's not just Ukrainians fighting the Russians, is it? Well, I think we have to be very careful here. Absolutely, the, the international community, NATO and the UK in particular, have given the Ukrainians a, a hell of a lot of advice, a hell of a lot of equipment and a hell of a lot of intelligence, which has allowed them to defeat the Russians' uh, conventional forces. When it comes to foreigners, if you like, fighting for the Ukraine, absolutely, there are lots of people who have gone to Ukraine to create these sort of foreign legions that are fighting there. Um, okay. As some people have suggested, are there British or American troops fighting there? Absolutely not. I would be, in fact, I'm convinced that there would be no official British and American troops fighting there. Are there British okay. and American citizens fighting there? Absolutely there are. All right, let's have a look for something, something else. There's a real strike coming up on October the 8th. Let's talk about that for a second. This is Jeremy Calder. It's GB News again. Simon, more strikes, Simon more misery. Calder. What's going on? Uh, well, this is a very deep and very bitter um, dispute, which we've seen, of course, ever since June, when the uh, first uh, strikes were called, first national rail strikes, where you were talking with Liam just now about going back to the 80s. We're certainly doing that in terms of the rail strikes. So the RMT union is the crucial one because it's got an awful lot of members working for an awful lot of train uh, operators, but also it also has the signalers for network rail. And that's why when this strike happens on the 8th of October, just like the one on the 1st of October, there will be perhaps one in five trains running on about half the network but it's probably going to be actually uh, a lot worse than that for rail passengers. As you say, it's the day before the Conservative Party conference, also the day before the London Marathon. This is a new strike called One Week Later, and the idea is very much to keep the pressure on the new government, on the new Transport Secretary, Anne-Marie Trevelyan. Now, I had heard from both the RMT union and ASNA, the Train Drivers Union, that they were actually getting in, uh, getting talks with uh, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who ultimately will sign off any paid deal, um, and they thought things were getting better, but this is just increasing the pressure. But at the same time, as you've got this massive row between the train operators, network rail, the government, and the unions stuck in the middle, it's the tens of thousands of passengers from here who use the train every day, and okay. millions like them elsewhere in the UK. You are, you, are, you are an incredibly well-travelled man, and your knowledge knows no bounds on this. In relative terms, for you, how good is the pay compared with similar services internationally for whether it's train drivers, signalers, etc., anyone who's going on strike in this country, and how good is the service? Because that's what people will be shouting at their TV screens now or their radios now wondering. Are these people paid enough for the job that they do and the service they provide? Right, the main thing is that uh, Britain thankfully has... Oh. oh, I think we're going to try and get Simon Calder back there, are we? Yes, OK, Simon Calder, who is at Charing Cross Station for us, I believe he was there. We cut him off in his prime now. I'll just ask him the big question that everybody wanted to know. 
I think hopefully he's back with us, Simon Calder. Sorry about that, Simon, you're back. You were silenced. Maybe we thought maybe you'd gone on strike for a second, but alas, no. Talk to me. I would never walk out on you, Patrick. <laughs> so, so, yeah, they are well paid. If you're a train driver, then you are most definitely in the upper half of the average salary scale. You're also uh, doing an extremely responsible job. Other workers in the rail industry, particularly cleaners um, and so on, would say that they are pretty poorly paid. Uh, um, the railways, thankfully, are kept extremely safe. Uh, which is very good news for travellers. But ultimately, rail revenue has fallen by 20% since before the coronavirus pandemic. The difference is being picked up by the taxpayers. That's all your lovely viewers and you and me. And, um, well, frankly, the country says we can't keep subsidising this. We've got to have better productivity. We can't give you pay that keeps pace with inflation. Meanwhile, the unions say... Well, all these trained operators, Network Rail, they haven't given us a sensible offer. We are taking a real terms pay cut and we are exercising our democratic right to withdraw our labour, which, and just to remind people, massive national strike by 1st of October. Drivers go on strike on the 5th of October and then we have the RMT with this strike just announced in the past few minutes on the 8th of October. Good luck, everybody. It, just very lastly, Simon, thank you for your time on this one then. So if the productivity appears to be down and the revenue appears to be down, then isn't it just natural basic economics that we can't offer a pay rise to people in line with inflation? Is it just tough to see? Well, look, um, the government, of course, is throwing money at lots of things at the moment. The unions are betting that if they keep the pressure up, then the government will cave in and start throwing money at the railways. However, um, I sense that uh, the government is prepared to sort of make a, a stand on this. That's why we've not seen uh, the train operators settle, because ultimately, I mean, Labour keeps calling for nationalisation of the trains. Well, everyone knows they are really in the government's control once again. And uh, it, it, the unions are, are kind of almost... Uh, yeah, it, it, Back where they were in the 80s, when they were winning strikes, they were shutting down the nation. The difference is, of course, that although commuters from Woking, from Winchester, from Windsor, aren't necessarily particularly put out when you have these strikes, which is why they are going for Saturdays, because those are the days of the week when you're seeing actually the most travellers, because that's the leisure travellers that everybody needs in order to keep the railways going, um, and they're exactly the people who are caught up in the middle of this awful round. All right, so there will be lots of rail strikes at the beginning of October. Fortunately, I don't commute anywhere at the moment because I'm uh, gainfully, gainfully unemployed. But, uh, well, I, I don't commute very far anyway. Even when I am employed, I don't commute very far. So let's have a look and see what else we've got on here. We've got a, a mini budget tomorrow. Let's have a, a conversation about that. It, it's it's a slew of economic news, of course, uh, after the hiatus of Her Majesty's funeral and so on. Today we've had an interest rate rise from the Bank of England uh, to two and a quarter uh, percent, less than the markets expected but still the highest rate for 14 years. Tomorrow we've got this mini-budget. The centrepiece, Gloria, of the mini-budget 
and we'll have special programming from 9.30 uh, tomorrow, will be the detailing of this household energy price cap, capping the average bill at £2,500 a year for both electricity and gas, though there are, of course, benefits available uh, across the piece for millions of less well-off households. But on top of that energy package, which could cost upward of £100 billion, there'll be not a focus, but in the background, a really big debate going on about how we do economic policy in this country. When huge historians look back on tomorrow's mini-budget, I think they'll see it as very, very significant because Liz Truss and our new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, they are implementing the biggest range of tax cuts for almost 30 years. We're going to see corporation tax rises that Rishi Sunak has legislated for scrapped. Corporation tax will stay at 19%, not 25%. We'll see those national insurance rises for employers and employees that came in in April reversed. We could see a cut in VAT. We could see some kind of cut in stamp duty. Now, that is what the, the, what you pay when you buy a new home if the home is worth more than £125,000. That threshold could change. The stamp duty thing in particular worries me, not because I support stamp duty. I think it's a ghastly tax. But if you get rid of it for a bit and you say it isn't a permanent scrappage, it's a temporary scrappage, you put rocket boosters under the housing market and you push up prices because everybody moves to take advantage of the tax uh, window where stamp duty is suspended, and that makes housing even less affordable for those struggling first-time buyers. On top of this interest they don't pay, rate they don't rise... pay stamp duty, to be fair. Well, well outside of London, actually. Yeah, there, there, there you go. Yeah. And those, those variables could change. What I would say is that £125,000 threshold, right, that's been in place since March 2006. It hasn't moved. So, of course, it becomes less and less valuable to people trying to buy a house with all respect to the lower end of the market as house prices go up. Uh, indexing and so on. Um, big day, big numbers, and you're on uh, in breakfast, and we're together from nine o'clock. Indeed, I'm I'm doing I'm around all through the breakfast show tomorrow on GB News. Um, nine thirty is when Kwasi Kwarteng makes his statement. Unusually, they're trying really hard to make sure this isn't seen as a budget, so they don't have to announce all the forecasting and all the rest of it. So it's at nine thirty. It's not usually in the afternoon when those big fiscal statements are. But special programming throughout the day tomorrow on GB News because it may be a mini budget to the government, but of course to many of our viewers and listeners, yeah, this is a big event. A big event. Jim, thank you. All right, it might be worth me doing a a show tomorrow morning, and then there'll be there'll be lots of live coverage of that. Oh, here's some material about the health service uh, winter plan. All of this is GB News. A huge amount of substance from Therese Coffey there, it must be said. There were bits and bobs, but in terms of GPs, as far as I could tell anyway, what she was saying was, you just need to see more patients. Well, it's interesting. Um, I think Professor Marshall's statement this morning uh, was, was quite conclusive, really, on this. I think what's happened is there's a lovely rhetoric that's come through of we need more appointments, we need to be seen, um, this is the big issue. But actually, sadly, the statistics count against what the Health Secretary said. 85% of people are seen within two weeks and 44% are seen on the same day in general practice, which doesn't suggest that 
appointments are the burdening issue. Well, actually, is one of the big issues is really the amount of staff we have, and particularly GPs, because GPs deal with really complex medical issues, and they can't just be done uh, or solved um, by papering over the cracks with some of the proposals today. Would it be fair to say that some GPs spend too much time working in the private sector if they devoted all their time to NHS? Maybe like 85% of patients who get to see the GP within two weeks could get closer to 100%. No, I don't think that would be fair at all. I think GPs work extremely hard and um, I think NHS GPs are working to full capacity and I think we've talked about this on previous shows where when we discuss a 10 or 12 hour day and we calculate that across three or four days, that, that is more than most people are working in a 40 hour week. So actually GPs are working extremely hard and what they do outside of that time is for them to choose. But I think the key point here is focusing on what the health secretary said Actually, our issue here is we've been promised 6,000 GPs, but clearly that's not enough. And what we really need to focus is on retention of the current GPs and not trying to break their back by adding more work and, and adding expectations which uh, are placed upon general practice without a substantial plan. We need to tackle the bureaucracy uh, that is existing in general practice. We also need to do things that are simple, upgrade IT systems and upgrade premises to incorporate more services in primary care. Yeah, okay. I mean, some people are saying that actually for an average of around £112,000 a year, it would be expected maybe that there would be longer hours involved in that than maybe your, your, your average job, I suppose. I mean, does that not stack up? Maybe you would say that the pressure is too high. The pressure is a lot higher. You can't equate that with the money. Sure, I, th I think 7.30 in the morning till 6.30, 7.30 at night is pretty long hours. I'm not sure how much longer you want GPs to work, Three days how many more days you can squeeze out. I think we need to be very careful in the way we uh, conduct our, our conversations and, and look at our timings because, you know, we're very we're very clear to say the GPs come in early, they're doing their paperwork, they're looking at the data, they're looking at the results of patients calling people before surgery, so then they conduct a surgery, then they'll do visits or other admin, and then they'll do an afternoon surgery. It's just that the time, of course, to see patients, maybe three or four hours, but of course within that, there's all these other things that need to be done as part of primary care. So I think we need to be really careful in how we, how we, we utilise our time, but definitely I, I know from my colleagues and myself, we're working very, very hard. Yeah, how do we get more GPs then? Because frankly, that would solve a huge amount of issues. Absolutely, yeah. And I think this is one of the key things that we need to iron out. Now, the, the government's promised 6,000 GPs, but realistically, we know we need more. And I think what really needs to happen is we need a longer consultation with the primary care leaders. You know, this statement from the health secretary team today was without consultation with Professor Marshall, the head of the RCGP, you know, without consultation with GPs who are on the front line who are doing this work and saying, well, how do we do this? Some of it is to do with how we alleviate some of the burdens on general practice. You know, it's a catch-all for all problems at the moment. And of course, there are welcome support from allied healthcare professionals, but we have to look at how we incentivize general practice and how we also retain our GPs rather than working them so hard that they feel they've got to explore other avenues or leave the NHS. Um, so there's, there's a combination there. I think one thing I would say is we do certainly share the frustration of the public. You know, I really wish I could see more and I wish there was more capacity in the system. So really the key point here is more GPs, more capacity, patients can be seen quicker. All right, let's, let's uh, 
leave GB News there. I'm just having a, a conversation in the chat chat room, so I'll address some of that. Uh, random bloke was asking me if I, what's my what's what's my opinion of the NHS, and I don't I don't use it. Um, the last you have to be registered with a doctor, really, to get access to it, and I am registered with a doctor, but it's from my previous address. And and the last the last time I went to a doctor, it was. It was really because you have to register, uh, so I thought I'd, I was I was persuaded to go and register just in case. And uh, they went through this health routine. The nurse went through this health routine with me, where she took me blood pressure, asked me about my family history, and all of that. And uh, and then went through the, the there's a there's a little bit of family history of of heart problems, but. But not much. I mean, my granddad died of a of a stroke. But uh, there's not much going on really in terms of, of fam family health conditions. The other granddad had glaucoma. Um, but I don't really get sick. So if I do get sick, I've got I've got Reiki, acupuncture, acupressure, uh, emotional freedom technique. Uh, I used to think of be, be set free fast. So I've got loads of things that I can I can deal with minor minor pain with. Reiki will sort minor pain. Acupressure will sort back pain out a little bit enough to get me functioning. If if and when I do get a little bit of sciatica. So I sort it out myself. Um, and I don't get majorly sick. I might have the odd cold here and there. Or the odd stomach upset, but but nothing major. I've never had any kind of major health issues. But I, when I went for this, uh, when I went to register with this GP, which is it was in Hewith, which is the last the last place that I lived, not this this one. Uh, she went through this health check thing with me, uh, asked me about the family history, and then obviously took took a a cholesterol reading or a blood pressure reading or whatever it was. And I was just below the threshold for statins. So I was, I think I was an eight on a 10 scale or something like that. Whereas up where over 10, they would have offered me statins for the rest of my life. And I don't want statins for the rest of my life. I've got no intention of doing any of that stuff. But the nurse apologised because she couldn't give me the statins because whatever it is they were measuring wasn't high enough. So she was apologetic. She wanted to give me the she wanted to give me the sweets, basically. Uh, statins are for blood pressure, I think, or cholesterol. One of those things. It's a heart-related thing, anyway. But uh, I wasn't—I wasn't quite at the at the threshold where they could give them to me, fortunately. So I didn't have enough points or whatever scale they were using to be given the statins. I think that—I think they're cholesterol. I think they control cholesterol. I, I can't remember, but. Uh, but it, well, I would have been on them for the rest of my life if you'd, if you'd given me them. 
it's 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 we're talking about every every day for the rest of your life and i don't want to do that even if i even if i even if i'm above the threshold to get statins i would still turn them down i wouldn't i wouldn't take them because i'm not taking anything for the rest of my life i'll sort it out myself if my blood pressure goes up to the point where i need to take medication i'll sort it out myself thank you very much i don't want to be part of that system and I have, I've been like that for 23 years. I, I kind of dropped out of the health system, dropped out of pretty much everything 23 years ago. And, uh, yeah, I, I was very wary about signing up for the doctor. I've been, I was still registered with a doctor I had in London. And I've been in Newcastle. At that point, I'd been in Newcastle 14 years. And I never bothered registering with a doctor because I don't get sick. So it's one of those things where if you're in the system, you'll get sicker. It's almost inevitable. They'll give you they'll give you medication and you'll get sicker. And I don't want to be in the system. I'd rather just sort it out myself. And then I know I don't want it might take me a bit of time or whatever, but and a bit of effort. But I'd rather do it myself. It's my body, I'm responsible for it, so I'll take the responsibility. I'm quite happy to do that. But of course if you pay if you pay tax and national insurance then you've then I'm paying into the health service anyway. But then my mother and my stepdad are both uh, they both worked for the National Health Service. And they love it. They love it. They think it's a wonderful thing. And I think originally it was a wonderful thing. But now, to me, it's not. And uh, I don't know how we solve the problem of people getting sicker. But the National Health Service isn't the way to do it. I think self-education and personal responsibility is the way to do it. But that takes, takes time. It's a long-term plan. It's like... Disease prevention is a long-term plan. So they'd rather just wait until you get sick, then you go to the doctors and they give you a pill. That doesn't solve any problems. All it is, it's just, it's just a pacifier. It'll, so it'll take away some of the symptoms. It might give you a few more symptoms, and then you need more another pill. So how's that making you healthy? It's not. It's making you sicker. It's masking your symptoms and giving you more symptoms that you then have to mask with another pill. doesn't make any sense to me. It's a vicious circle, and I can't see the sense in being part of it. So it's a, it's a negative feedback loop, and I want a positive feedback loop. I don't want a negative feedback loop. Thank you very much. So you've set me off on a bit of a rant there, random bloke, but it's kind of, it's kind of the, it's the thing that... Uh, that I think about a lot, all of these things I think about a lot. And the only way the only way you can solve the problem is to drop out of the health service, educate yourself, and take personal responsibility. I think that's the only way to that's the only way to solve the problem. But people don't want to do it. People like people like going to the doctors and getting sweets. They like, they like being rewarded with, with pills. 
It's like you're rewarding a child with sweets. But you're rewarding them for being sick. You're not rewarding them for being a good, good little boy or girl. So you're reinforcing the sickness with the pill that then produces another sickness to get another pill because it's a reward. So how does the psychology of that work? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. It's a perverse incentive that makes people sick because they're viewing the, they're viewing the tablet as a, as, a, as a reward, as a reward for being sick. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much in the holistic approach, very much that way. I think you've got to start with, with attitude, you've got to start with intentionality, and then visualise yourself healthier than you are, and always visualise yourself healthier than, than you feel, and visualise yourself healthier than, than you could be, do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm... I've just turned 57. It was my birthday yesterday. I haven't been to the doctors in 20 years. I know 40-year-olds I know who go to the doctors every, every couple of weeks. But it's, it's, a, it's an approach. It's philosophy. It's attitude. It's all of those things. And I don't see, I don't see how being rewarded for going to the doctor because you're sick is going to stop people from getting sick. It's going to encourage people to get sick. So, I mean, it's not consciously a reward, but subconsciously. If somebody gives you a sweet when you're a child, it's because you, you've been good. And tablets are the equivalent of sweets. So, subconsciously, there's an association going on between the tablets, between the pill... And how how you were rewarded when you were a child. So I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of a, a negative feedback loop like that. That's disguised as a positive feedback loop. Does my head in completely? I don't understand it. Yeah, it does take time. You're right. But it's the it's the most important time that you'll ever take, in my in my view. Because if you don't have your health, you can't do you can't do anything. You lose the ability to, to live your life without your health. So you've got to take the time to to sit down and assess it, and you've got to assess your psychology at the same time, because most most of what comes up in terms of disease is an extension of of psychology, it's grief that's being uh, somatized, or it's anger that's being somatized. It's it's going from the psychology into the physical body. Yeah, stress, particularly particularly long term stress like grieving or or whatever, anxiety, anger, all of those things. If you don't let them out, then they get stuck. They get stuck in your body 
and turn into long-term serious diseases eventually they become become the place where you the, the place where you get that block is the place where the, the cancerous cells will fall and uh, it's it becomes a becomes a big issue but it's all it all starts with emotion it all starts with letting out emotions with flow uh, and that's what emotional freedom techniques for emotional freedom technique is wonderful for just getting things out getting things moving uh, digging into things that have been sitting there since you were a child you can get at it with emotional freedom technique and it, it can be embarrassing but but it's got to come out whatever it is that's stuck in there whether it's it's anger or it's it, it's a feeling of helplessness or whatever it is you've got to let it out otherwise you're going to get sick eventually and it's going to it's going to mess your life up in between because it's stuck there there's part of you that's a a, a helpless four-year-old or five-year-old or whatever it is and and that that part of you is going to slow things down in your life because it, it's a feeling of helplessness and a feeling of fear from when you were four years old. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stop you from doing things that you could be doing and it's going to slow you down. So the, the more you get it out, the, the easier life gets. In theory, at least. But it does take time. It takes a lot of time and a lot of concentration and a lot of discipline. And most people don't have it. Most people don't have the discipline. Uh, anyway, that's my rant. Um, I've got to go and get some food now. I think so. I'm gonna I'm gonna close this up. Thanks for coming in, though, random bloke. You always set me off on a rant of some sort or another, um, which is good because the, the more I do that, the better. Because that's getting it out of my system as well. All right, I'll be back later on. Um, I think I might be back at nine o'clock my time rather than ten, because I'm going to I'm going to see if I can do the pod being show an hour earlier, and then I don't have to send because I'm I'm having trouble sending this over Skype and Podbean at the same time. So I'm going to do the Podbean show an hour earlier. I think. All right. See you later on, or tomorrow, or whenever. Enjoy, man.